Chapter 8, Part 1 of History of the Catholic Church from the Renaissance to the French Revolution, Volume 2, by Reverend James McCaffrey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Church in Ireland during the reigns of Henry the Eighth and Edward the Sixth, 1509-1553. When Henry the Eighth ascended the English throne, though he styled himself the Lord of Ireland, he could claim little authority in the country. The neglect of his predecessors, the quarrels between the English colonists, especially between the Geraldines and the Butlers, and the anxiety of both parties to ally themselves with the Irish princes, had prevented the permanent conquest of the country. Outside the very limited area of the Pale, English sheriffs or judges dare not appear to administer English law, no taxes were paid to the crown, no levies of troops could be raised, and the colonists could only hope for comparative peace by paying an annual tribute to the most powerful of their Irish neighbours. The barony of Leacall and Down paid forty pounds a year to O'Neill of Clandeboy. Louth paid a similar sum to O'Neill of Tyrone. Meath paid three hundred pounds a year to O'Connor of Offaly. Kildare twenty pounds to O'Connor. Wexford forty pounds to the McMurroughs. Kilkenny and Tipperary forty pounds to O'Carroll of Ely. Limerick City and County eighty pounds to the O'Briens. Cork, forty pounds to the McCarthys, and so low had the government fallen that it consented to pay eighty marks yearly from the royal treasury to McMurrow. During the early years of his reign, Henry the Eighth was so deeply interested in his schemes for subduing France and in continental affairs generally that he could give little attention to his dominions in Ireland. Sometimes the Earl of Kildare was superseded by the appointment of the Earl of Surrey, fifteen twenty, and of Sir Piers Butler, the claimant to the earldom of Ormond. 1521, and of Sir William Skeffington, 1529. But as a general rule, Kildare, whether as deputy or as a private citizen, succeeded in dictating the policy of the government. By his matrimonial alliances with the Irish chieftains, the O'Neills, the McCarthys, O'Carroll of Ely, and O'Connor of Offaly, his bargains with many of the other Irish and Anglo-Irish nobles, and by his well-known prowess in the field, he had succeeded in making himself much more powerful in Ireland than the English sovereign. But his very success had raised up against him a host of enemies, led by his old rival, the Earl of Ormond, and supported by a large body of ecclesiastics, including Allen, the Archbishop of Dublin, and of lay nobles. Various charges against him were forwarded to England, and in 1534 he was summoned to London to answer for his conduct. Before setting out on his last journey to London, he appointed his son, Lord Thomas Fitzgerald, Silken Thomas, then a youth of twenty-one, to take charge of the government. The latter had neither the wisdom nor the experience of his father. Rumours of his father's execution, spread by the enemies of the Geraldines, having reached his ears, despite the earnest entreaties of Archbishop Cromer of Armagh, he resigned the sword of state, and called upon his retainers to avenge the death of the Earl of Kildare. 1534. The rebellion of Silken Thomas forced Henry VIII to undertake a determined campaign for the conquest of Ireland. His hopes of winning glory and territory in France had long since disappeared. He was about to break completely with Rome, and there was some reason to fear that Charles V might make a descent upon the English coasts, with or without the aid of the King of France. Were an invasion from the continent undertaken before the conquest of Ireland had been finished, it might result in the complete separation of that kingdom from England, and its transference to some foreign power. It was well known that some of the Irish princes were in close correspondence with France and Scotland, that Silken Thomas was hoping for the assistance of the Emperor, and that once England had separated herself definitely from the Holy See, many of the Irish and Anglo-Irish nobles might be induced to make common cause with the Pope against a heretical king. Hitherto the king's only legal title to the lordship of Ireland was the supposed grant of Adrian the Fourth, and as such a grant must necessarily lapse on account of heresy and schism, a new title must be sought for in the complete conquest of the country. The circumstances were particularly favourable for undertaking such a work. The royal treasury was well supplied. England had little to fear for the time being from Francis I or Charles V, as the energies of both are required for the terrible struggle between France and the Empire. The friends of Ormond and the enemies of Kildare, both Irish and Anglo-Irish, could be relied upon to lend their aid, and even the Irish princes, friendly to Kildare, might be conciliated by fair promises of reward. Relying upon all these considerations, 
Henry VIII determined to reduce Ireland to submission, and at the same time to put an end to his religious and political dependence on the Holy See. William Skeffington was reappointed deputy and sent over to quell the rebellion, together with Sir Piers Butler, who, in consideration of the bestowal upon him of the territories of the former earls of Ormond, he agreed to resist the usurped jurisdiction of the Pope, especially in regard to appointments to benefices. 1534. The campaign opened early in 1535, but as the new deputy was physically unable to command a great military expedition, Lord Leonard Grey, the brother-in-law of the Earl of Kildare, was soon entrusted with the conduct of the war. Though in the beginning Silken Thomas had met with success, the news of the rumoured execution of the Earl was untrue. The murder of the Archbishop of Dublin by some of the Geraldine followers, and the excommunication that such a deed involved, disheartened his army, and caused many of those upon whom he relied to desert him. At last, in August 1535, he surrendered to Lord Grey, who seems to have given him a promise of his life, but Henry VIII was not the man to allow any obligations of honour to interfere with his policy. After having been kept in close confinement in the tower for months, he and his five uncles were hanged, drawn, and quartered at Tyburn, 1537. The king's only regret was that the young heir to the earldom of Kildare was allowed to escape, and the failure to capture his own sister's son was one of the gravest charges brought afterwards against Lord Leonard Grey. As it was, the rebellion was suppressed. O'More of Leeks, O'Carroll of Ely, O'Connor of Offaly, and the other Irish adherents of the Geraldines were reduced to submission, and thereby the work of conquest was well begun. In 1536, as a reward for the services he had rendered, and in the hope that he would carry the work of subjugation to a successful conclusion, Leonard Grey was appointed deputy. Henry VIII had separated himself definitely from the Catholic Church, and had induced a large number of English bishops, ecclesiastics, and nobles to reject the jurisdiction of the Pope in favor of royal supremacy. In England he owed much of his success to the presence of Cranmer in the Metropolitan See of Canterbury, and to the skill with which his clever counsellors manipulated Parliament, so as to ensure its compliance with the royal wishes. Hence, when he determined to detach Ireland from its allegiance to Rome, he resolved to utilize the Archbishop of Dublin and the Irish Parliament. Fortunately for him, Dublin was then vacant owing to the murder of Archbishop Allen during the Geraldine Rebellion, 1534. After careful consideration, he determined to confer the archbishopric on George Brown, an Augustinian friar, who had merited the royal favour by preaching so strongly against Henry's marriage with Catherine of Aragon that most of the congregation rose in a body and left the church. According to the imperial ambassador, it was Brown who officiated at the secret marriage of the king to Anne Boleyn, and it was on that account he was created provincial of the English Augustinians and joined in a commission with Dr. Hilsey, the provincial of the Dominicans, for a visitation of the religious houses in England. The new archbishop received his commission from the king without reference to the pope and his consecration from Cramner, 1536. Brown was in every way a worthy representative of the new spiritual dictator and of the new learning. His nomination to Dublin was condemned by the people of Lincoln because he had abandoned the Christian faith. Hardly had he arrived in Dublin when he found himself at loggerheads with Lord Grey, who treated him with studied contempt and took very violent measures to cool his religious ardour. He was assailed by his royal spiritual head for his arrogance and inefficiency, and warned to take heed lest he who had made him a bishop might unmake him. By his fellow labourers and associates in the work of spreading the gospel, Staples of Meath and Bale of Ossery, he was denounced as a heretic, an avaricious dissembler, a drunkard, and a profligate, who preached only two sermons, with which the people became so familiar that they knew what to expect once he had announced his text. Before the arrival of Brown in Ireland, careful steps were taken by the deputy and the Earl of Ormond to ensure that only trustworthy men should be elected as Knights of the Shire, while the lawyers were hard at work both in England and Ireland drafting the laws the Parliament was expected to ratify. The assembly opened on Monday, 1st May, at Dublin, was adjourned 31st May, to Kilkenny, then to Cashel, 28th July, then to Limerick, 2nd August, from which place it returned once more to Dublin. The next session opened in September 1536, and after several short sessions and long adjournments, it was prorogued, finally, in December 1537. 
as far as can be seen no representatives attended this parliament except from the pale and from the territories under the influence of the earl of ormond and his adherents it was in no sense an irish parliament as not a single irish layman took part in it nor could it be described accurately even as a parliament of leinster it is generally assumed that together with the act of attainder against the party of kildare all the legislation passed already in england including the act of succession and of royal supremacy the acts against the authority of the bishop of rome against appeals to rome and transferring to the king the first fruits etc were passed almost immediately and with very little opposition except the strong protest lodged by archbishop cromer of armagh but an examination of the correspondence that passed between the authorities in dublin and in london reveals a very different story it is true that on the seventeenth may Barbazin informed cromwell that the act of attainder against kildare the acts of succession of royal supremacy and of first fruits had already passed the commons and that on the first june the deputy wrote that all these including the act against appeals to rome had passed the parliament and that in the same month cromwell expressed his thanks to some of the irish officials for having secured the assent of parliament to all these measures but in spite of these assurances of victory secured before parliament had been a month in session there must have occurred some very serious hitch in the programme in october fifteen thirty six robert cowley wrote to cromwell to complain that certain acts had been rejected owing to the action of some ringleaders or bellwethers who had decided to send a deputation to england to argue stiffly against them that patrick barnewall the king's sergeant was on the side of the discontents and that he declared in the house of commons that he would not grant that the king had as much spiritual power as the bishop of rome or that he could dissolve religious houses as nothing could be done the session was adjourned until february fifteen thirty seven when the deputy announced that owing to the confusion caused in the commons by the reported return of silken thomas and to the boldness of the spirituality on account of the religious rebellion which had taken place in england no measures could be passed and a further adjournment was necessary when parliament met again matters were still going badly for the king the deputy informed cromwell that the spirituality was still obstinate that the spiritual peers refused to debate any bill till they should receive satisfactory assurances that the spiritual proctors or representatives of the clergy should be allowed to vote and that as the parliament had refused to pass the bill imposing a tax of one twentieth of their annual revenues on the holders of benefices he was obliged to adjourn till july he warned cromwell that as the proctors and the bishops had formed a combination little could be passed until the proctors were deprived of their votes and he suggested that as a means of overcoming the resistance of the spirituality the king should send over a special commissioner to be present at the opening of the next session acting on this suggestion a royal commission consisting of anthony st ledger george Paulette, thomas moyle and william berners was dispatched to ireland july fifteen thirty seven to deliver the following acts to be passed by parliament namely acts depriving the spiritual proctors of their right to vote and against the powers of the bishop of rome together with acts giving to the king the tax of one twentieth on benefices enforcing the use of the english language and dress and prohibiting alliances with the wild irish at the same time henry wrote to the deputy and council warning them to obey the instructions of the commissioners and to the house of lords ordering them to ratify the bills to be submitted and telling them that if any member be unwilling to do so we shall look upon him with our princely eye as his ingratitude therein shall be little to his comfort when parliament met again in october the spiritual proctors were deprived of their votes and it was only then that the act against the bishop of rome could be carried the threats of royal vengeance seemed to have produced the same effects in the dublin assembly as in the english parliament probably as happened in england those who could not agree with the measures were content to absent themselves during the discussions the truth is therefore that archbishop cromer was supported in his attitude by the bishops and the representatives of the clergy and that the acts against the jurisdiction of the pope were carried against the wishes of the spirituality but the placing of the acts upon the statute book did not mean that the cause of the king had triumphed steps must be taken to enforce the laws against the jurisdiction of the pope already in october fifteen thirty seven the royal commissioners who had been sent over by the king to overawe the parliament undertook a judicial tour through the southeastern portion of ireland to inquire into the grievances of the people and especially to secure grounds of complaint against the ecclesiastics 
so as to enable the government to overcome the opposition of the representatives in Parliament. During their journey they held sessions at Kilkenny, Waterford, Wexford, New Ross, Clonmel, and Tipperary. In the circumstances, it is not difficult to understand how easy it was for them to find individuals ready to come forward with accusations, both against the lay lords and the clergy, especially as the commissioners, in some cases at least, suggested the points of complaint. In Wexford, for example, the crime alleged against the Dean of Ferns and three other priests of having pursued bulls from Rome has a very suspicious ring. Against many individual clerics, including the Archbishop of Cashel and the Bishop of Waterford, the priors and heads of several religious houses, and certain rectors and vicars, it was alleged that they levied various exactions, like the lay lords, that they demanded excessive fees on the occasion of their ministrations, and that they asserted claims to fishing weirs, etc., to which they were not entitled. If it be borne in mind that the bishops, priors, and heads of religious houses were also landlords, like the lay lords, against whom charges of almost similar exactions were lodged, the presentments of grievances, at least, in this respect, were not very convincing. For this same reason, the fact that the Archbishop of Cashel was said to have been in a boat which robbed a boat from Clonmel, and that he caused a riot in the latter city, that the Bishop of Waterford and Lismore took bribes, or that Purcell, the Bishop of Ferns, joined with O'Cavanagh in an attack against Fethard, need not cause any surprise. It was only against James Butler, the Cistercian abbot of Inislanga, and his monks, the Augustinian monks of Athassel, the Carmelite priors of Lady Abbey, near Clonmel and Noctafer, and the abbot of Dusk, that grave charges of immorality were made. Even if these charges were true, and the evidence is by no means convincing, they serve only to emphasize the downfall of discipline caused in the individual religious houses by the interference with canonical election, and the intrusion oftentimes by family influence of unworthy men as abbots or commendatory abbots. Henry the Eighth was anxious to complete the conquest of Ireland, even before he had broken with the Pope. But after the separation of England from Rome, he realized more clearly the dangers that might ensue unless the Irish and Anglo-Irish princes were reduced to submission. As things stood, Ireland, instead of contributing anything, was a constant source of loss to the royal treasury, and, were an invasion attempted by some of his continental rivals, Ireland might become a serious menace to England's independence. The complete overthrow of the Geraldine Rebellion, 1535, had prepared the way for a more general advance, but the failure of the deputy to capture the young heir to the earldom of Kildare was as displeasing to the king personally as it was dangerous to his plans. The boy was conveyed away secretly by his tutor, a priest named Laverus, who was advanced afterwards to the Sea of Kildare, and was brought for safety to the territory of O'Brien of Thomond. When Thomond was threatened by the rapid advance of the deputy, the young Earl of Kildare was conveyed to his aunt, Lady Eleanor McCarthy of Cork, who on the marriage of Manus O'Donnell, Prince of Tyrconnell, brought the boy with her to Donegal, 1538. O'Connor of Offaly and O'Carroll had been compelled to sue for peace, 1535. In the following year, Lord Grey made a tour of the southeastern parts of Leinster, proceeded through Tipperary, and directed his march against the strongholds of O'Brien of Thomond. Partly by his own skill and boldness, partly by the treachery of one of the O'Briens, he succeeded in capturing some of the principal fortresses, including O'Brien's bridge. Had it not been for a mutiny that broke out among his soldiers, Lord Grey might have succeeded in forcing O'Brien to make terms, but, as it was, he was obliged to desist from further attack, and to retreat hastily to Dublin. O'Brien soon recaptured the positions he had lost. O'Connor of Offaly took the field once more and the unfortunate deputy, harassed by his enemies on the Privy Council, and blamed by the king for his failure to get possession of the hope of the Geraldines, found himself in the greatest difficulties. But he was a man of wonderful military resource, and knowing well that failure must mean his own recall, and possibly his execution, he determined to put forth all his energies in another great effort. So long as the Irish in the Leinster districts were active, it was little use for him to undertake dangerous expeditions towards the more remote districts, and for this reason he turned his attentions to O'Connor of Offaly. Before many months elapsed, he forced the McMurroughs, the Cavanaghs, the O'Moores, the O'Carrolls, MacGillapatrick of Ossery, and O'Connor to sue humbly for peace. But many difficulties still remained to be overcome before he could boast a final victory. 
con o'neill manus o'donnell and many of their adherents were still threatening desmond o'brien of thalmond and the nobles of munster generally could not be relied upon while the irish and anglo-irish of connaught paid but scanty respect to the king or his deputy rumours too were in circulation that north and south were about to unite in defence of the heir of the geraldines that secret communications were carried on with scotland france and the empire and that the pope was in full sympathy with the movement surrounded by discontented subordinates who forwarded complaints almost weekly to england in the hope of securing his disgrace lord grey was resolved to push forward rapidly even though the campaign might prove risky in fifteen thirty eight he marched south and west passed by limerick through the territories of o'brien and clanrickard to galway having received everywhere the submission of the princes except of o'brien and the earl of desmond in the following year fifteen thirty nine he directed his attention towards the north but o'neill and o'donnell having composed their differences and having strengthened themselves by an understanding with the earl of desmond and the adherents of the geraldines marched south in the hope of joining hands with their allies having learned when in the neighbourhood of tara that the deputy was on the march against them they retreated towards the confines of monaghan where they were overtaken and routed at bellahoe near, near carrickmacross fifteen thirty nine their defeat seems to have destroyed the spirit of the irish princes one by one they began to beg for terms so that before lord grey was recalled in fifteen forty he had the satisfaction of knowing that he had vindicated english authority in the country instead of rewarding his deputy for all that he had done henry the eighth giving credence to the story circulated by archbishop brown and others that lord grey connived at the escape of the young kildare and had supported the cause of rome committed him to the tower and later on he handed him over to the executioner fifteen forty one meanwhile how fared it with the new archbishop who had been sent over to enlighten the irish nation in july fifteen thirty seven henry felt it necessary to reprove his spiritual representative for his lightness of behaviour his vainglory and his remissness in preaching the pure word of god and to warn him that if he did not show himself more active both in religious matters and in advancing the king's cause he should be obliged to put a man of more honesty in his place the archbishop issued a form of prayer in english to be read in all the churches extolling royal supremacy and denouncing the pope but it produced no effect once when the archbishop attended high mass in st andrews the rector mounted the pulpit to read the prayer but immediately one of the canons gave a signal to the choir to proceed and the archiepiscopal message was lost to the congregation in january fifteen thirty eight he acknowledged that though the influence of the king ought to be greatest within the city and province of dublin yet notwithstanding his gentle exhortation his evangelical instruction his insistence on oaths of obedience and his threats of sharp correction he could not induce any one to preach the word of god or the just title of the king the men who preached formerly till christians were tired of them would not open their lips except in secret when they gave full vent to their opinions and thereby destroyed the fruits of the labour of their archbishop that the observant friars were the worst offenders of all refusing to take the oath and showing open contempt for his authority that he could not persuade the clergy to erase the name of the pope from the canon of the mass and was obliged to send his own servants to carry out this work that a papal indulgence had been published in ireland of which many had hastened to take advantage by fulfilling the conditions laid down namely fasting on wednesday friday and saturday and receiving holy communion and that all bishops made by the king except himself were repelled to make way for those appointed by rome although the chapter in dublin had been packed carefully to prepare the way for the election of brown the archbishop was forced to complain that he had been withstood to his face by one of the prebendaries james humphrey and that of the staff of the cathedral twenty-eight in number there was scarce one that favoured the word of god in a letter sent to cromwell fifteen thirty eight agard informed him that the power of the bishop of rome was still strong that the observant friars upheld it boldly that nobody dared to say anything against them as nearly all in authority were in favour of the pope except brown allen master of the rules brabazon the vice-treasurer and one or two others of no importance and that the temporal lawyers who drew the king's fees could not be trusted everywhere throughout the country it was the same story those who should set an example to others resorted to the friars for confession and were encouraged in their boldness Nangle, who had been intruded into the see of clomfort by the king was driven out by roland burgo the papal bishop 
and dared not show himself in his diocese. Never was there so much Rome running in the country, four or five bishops together with several priors and abbots, having been appointed lately by the Pope, while friar and a bishop, probably Rory O'Donnell of Derry, who had been arrested, were tried and acquitted at Trim, because the people in authority were hypocrites and worshippers of idols. From 1536, therefore, till 1538, the new gospel had made small progress in Ireland. Had the men entrusted with this propagation been of one mind, they might have used the king's power with some effect, but the deputy, the archbishop of Dublin, and the bishop of Meath were at each other's throats almost continually. The deputy treated the archbishop with studied contempt, spoke of him as a pole-shorn friar, and obstructed his plans. According to Brown and his friends, Aylin and Brabazon, the deputy befriended the papists and the friars, knelt in prayer before the shrine of Our Lady of Trim, and supported a bishop appointed by Rome against one appointed by the king. Edward Staples, a former protégé of Cardinal Wolsey, by whom he was recommended to Rome, was appointed by the Pope to Meath in 1530. But being a steady opponent of the Geraldines, he was obliged to escape to his own country in 1534. There he took the side of the king against Clement VII, and on his return to Ireland, after he had received a sharp admonition from the king, he undertook to preach in favour of royal supremacy. But his views did not coincide with those of the Archbishop of Dublin. The latter was obliged to complain that Stables denounced him as a heretic and a beggar with other rabulous revilings, and that not content with this, he preached in the church at Kilmainham, where the stations and pardons were used as freely as ever, and attacked the Archbishop before his faith with such a stomach as I think the three-mouthed Cerberus of hell could not have uttered it more viperously. He glossed every sentence of the archbishop's sermons after such opprobrious fashion that every honest ear glowed to hear it, and he exhorted them all, yea, and so much as in him lay, he adjured them to give no credence to their spiritual guide, whatsoever he might say, for before God he would not. The Bishop of Meath replied that the Archbishop had given himself such airs that every honest man was weary of him, and that he, the Bishop, had come to the conclusion that pride and arrogance hath ravished him from the right remembrance of himself. In reply to Brown's covert hint that Staples was conniving at the authority of the Pope, the latter charged the Archbishop, whom he described as his purgatory, with abhorring the Mass, and prayed that an inquiry should be held. An attempt was made to patch up the quarrel, but the archbishop was far from content that his authority had not been upheld. For so far the Reformation had made little or no progress in Ireland, and apparently bishops, clergy, and people were still strong on the side of Rome. But during the successful military expedition undertaken by Lord Grey into the centre, south, and west of Ireland in 1538, he claimed to have achieved great success. In March 1538, O'Connor of Offaly made a submission promising at the same time not to admit the jurisdiction of the Roman pontiff, or to allow others to admit it. The Earl of Ormond and the Butler family, generally, were attached to the king's cause, on account of their opposition to the Geraldines. O'Carroll of Ely agreed to accept the king's peace, but there is no evidence that he agreed to the king's religious program. At Limerick, according to the deputy's own story, the mayor and corporation took the oath of royal supremacy, and renounced the authority of the pope, as did also the bishop, who promised furthermore to induce his clergy to follow this example. Similarly, in Galway, he assured the king, he had sworn the mayor, corporation, and bishop to resist the usurped jurisdiction of the bishop of Rome. But as against the trustworthiness of this report, it should be remembered that it is contradicted in very important particulars by another official account of the proceedings, written by eyewitnesses, that the deputy's doings on this occasion were belittled and disparaged by the Privy Council, that Brown charged Grey with having deposed, while he was in the neighbourhood of Limerick, a bishop appointed by the king to make room for a Franciscan friar provided by the Pope, and with having supported the mayor of Limerick, who was a strong adherent of the Geraldines, that according to the same authority, while Grey was in Galway, he entertained right royally a bishop, probably Roland de Burgo, who had expelled the king's presentee from the bishopric of Clonfort. And that finally, in Robert Crowley's opinion, Grey's expedition had for its object not so much the extension of the king's territory as the formation of a Geraldine League against the Irish and Anglo-Irish of the South and West to support O'Neill and O'Donnell. 
it is important to bear in mind that the highest english officials in ireland at this period were divided into two factions one favouring the deputy and another attempting to secure his downfall by charging him with being too friendly toward the papists and the geraldines the leaders of the latter section and according to a trustworthy witness the only men in authority who favoured the campaign against the pope were brown allen the master of the rules Brabazon, the vice-treasurer and one or two others amongst whom might be reckoned aylmer the chief justice they were annoyed at the reported success of lord grey in fifteen thirty eight and however much they tried to disparage it they felt that unless they could accomplish something remarkable for the king's cause the triumph of the deputy was assured early in december fifteen thirty eight a message had been received containing an advertisement for the setting forth of the word of god abolishing of the bishop of rome's usurped authority and extinguishing of idolatry immediately the members of the council hostile to lord grey saw their opportunity of securing a signal victory if they could not penetrate into the north or west they determined to make an excursion into the four shires above the barrow to assert the king's supremacy but also to levy the first fruits and twentieth part with other of the king's revenue leaving dublin towards the end of december they proceeded at first to carlow where they were entertained by lord james butler and thence to kilkenny where they were welcomed by the earl of ormond on new year's day the archbishop preached to a large audience setting forth the royal or rather cromwell's injunctions fifteen thirty six several copies of which were supplied to the bishops and dignitaries of the diocese for the use of the clergy something similar was done in ross wexford and waterford except that in the latter place they hanged a friar in his habit in order that his corpse should be left on the gallows for a mere to all others of his brethren to live truly next they visited clonmel in which town according to their own story they achieved their greatest success at clonmel was with us two archbishops and eight bishops in whose presence my lord of dublin preached in advancing the king's supremacy and the extinguishment of the bishop of rome and his sermon finished all the said bishops and all the open audience took the oath mentioned in the acts of parliament both touching the king's succession and supremacy before me the king's chancellor and divers others present did the like though as shall be seen there was probably some foundation for this report there are many things about it which would seem to indicate that its authors were guilty of gross exaggeration in the first place it should be noted that though it is headed the council of ireland to cromwell is signed only by brown aylen brabazon and aylmer the sworn enemies of the deputy and the very men who had denounced him for magnifying his success in the previous year secondly it deals only in generalities giving no particulars about the names of the archbishops or bishops who were alleged to have been present though such details would have been of the highest importance thirdly as can be seen from the correspondence of the period brown was not accustomed to hide his merits or his services and yet in a personal letter written to cromwell a week later he merely states that during the month he spent in munster he did not only preach and set forth the word of god but also my master the king's highness most goodly purpose lastly it should not be forgotten that though brown and his friends claimed to have been honoured with the presence of the bishops from the entire province of munster yet at that time the earl of desmond and his adherents o'brien of thomond the mccarthys and nearly all the irish and anglo-irish nobles of the province with the exception of the ormond faction which controlled only a portion of south-eastern munster were still loyal to rome the object of the report then seems to have been to destroy the influence of the deputy and the effect of his victory by showing what his opponents had effected and could effect if only their hands were not tied by the action of a superior who was leagued with the papists and the enemies of the crown any one acquainted with the miserable intrigues and petty jealousies revealed by the official correspondence of the period can have no difficulty in believing that the authors of this report would have had little scruple in departing from the truth though brown like his masters cromwell cramner was inclined to push forward rapidly with his radical schemes of reform yet well aware of the state of feeling in dublin and throughout the country he feared to give offence by proceeding at once to extremes at first he contented himself with issuing the beads or a form of prayer for the king as supreme head of the church for prince edward for the deputy council and nobles and for the faithful departed encouraged however by the wholesale attack on images and pilgrimage shrines begun in england fifteen thirty eight 
he determined to undertake a similar work in Ireland in the same year. But such a work proved to be so distasteful to the people that he was obliged to deny that he had any intention of pulling down the image of Our Lady of Trim or the Holy Cross in Tipperary, though in his letter to Cromwell he admitted that his conscience would right well serve him to oppress such idols. In August of the same year, Lord Butler reported to Cromwell that the vicar of Chester announced in the presence of the deputy, the archbishop, and several members of the council that the king had commanded that images should be set up again and worshipped as before, whereupon the deputy remained silent. But some of the others answered that if the vicar were not protected by the presence of the deputy, they would put him fast by the heels, as he deserved grievous punishment. In October, Lord Grey, the Archbishop of Dublin, and others attended the sessions at Trim for the trial of a bishop and of a Franciscan friar, and, to the no small indignation of the Archbishop, Lord Grey visited the shrine of Our Lady of Trim to pray before the image. The encouragement given to Brown and his friends at Cromwell's instructions, December 1538, strengthened them to continue their campaign for the plucking down of idols and the extinguishing of idolatry. The shrine of Our Lady at Trim was destroyed, the staff of Jesus was burned publicly, the cross of Ballybogan was broken, and a special commission was established to search for and to destroy images, pictures, and relics. Even the deputy, who was accused of favoring idols and papistry, had already despoiled the Cathedral of Down, the Monastery of Calais, and the Collegiate Church of Galway. Though, in all probability, this action was taken not so much out of contempt for the practices of the Church, as with the hope of raising money to pay his troops and of securing the favor of the king. In England, Henry the Eighth had turned his attention almost immediately, after the separation from Rome, to the suppression of the monasteries and religious houses. This step was undertaken by him, partly because the religious orders were the strongest and most energetic supporters of the Pope, and partly, also, because he wished to enrich the royal treasury by the plunders of the goods and possessions of the monasteries. In England, however, some form of justice was observed but in ireland no commission was appointed to report on the condition of the monasteries or convents and no opportunity was given them to defend themselves against the slanderous statements of officials who were thirsting to get possession of their lands and their revenues according to the estimate given by de burgo there were in ireland at the time of henry the eighth two hundred and thirty-one houses of the canons regular of st augustine thirty-six houses belonging to the premonstratensians twenty-two of the knights of st john fourteen to the trinitarians or crouched friars nine to the benedictines forty-two to the cistercians forty-three to the dominicans sixty-five to the franciscans twenty-six to the hermits of st augustine twenty-five to the carmelites and forty-three belonging to various communities of nuns though in many particulars the summary is far from being accurate it may be taken as giving a fairly correct idea of the number of religious houses at the period many of these institutions were possessed of immense wealth derived for the most part from lands and church patronage according to a return drawn up in fifteen thirty six the annual revenue of the religious houses in meath was set down at nine hundred pounds irish money in dublin at nine hundred pounds in louth at six hundred pounds and in Kildare at £255. If steps were taken to suppress immediately the houses within these four shires, it was reckoned that the king might secure an annual revenue of £3,000. But if the communities concerned got warning of the danger, it was thought that the king would lose £1,000 of this. By Henry's orders, steps were taken in 1536 to secure the approval of Parliament for the suppression of the monasteries, but though the Abbey of St. Wolston, near Leakslip, belonging to the canons regular of St. Victor, was suppressed. Both the spiritual and the lay peers, together with the proctors of the clergy, offered a strenuous opposition to the attack on the religious establishments. They knew better than the English officials the work that was being done by many of these institutions for religion, education, and hospitality, as well as for the comfort of the poor and the infirm. In October 1537, however, an act was passed for the suppression of Bechtive, St. Peter's beside Trim, Dusk, Dulek, Homepatrick, Boltinglass, Togmolin, Dumbrody, Tintern, and Ballybogan. Their lands, houses, and possessions generally were to be vested in the king, and a pension was to be secured to the abbots and priors. 
together with these eight abbeys mentioned in a special commission under the great seal were suppressed the other religious houses alarmed by the course of proceedings both in england and at home began to cut down the timber on their properties to dispose of their goods to hide their valuable church plate and to lease their farms urgent appeals were sent to cromwell from archbishop brown and others requesting that a commission should be issued instantly for the suppression of the monasteries and convents henry the eighth and cromwell were nothing loath to accede to these demands particularly as some of the mendicants had been very zealous in defence of the rights of the pope and accordingly a royal commission was addressed to the archbishop of dublin john allen chancellor william brabazon vice-treasurer robert cowley master of the rolls and thomas cusick empowering them to undertake the work of suppression april fifteen thirty nine from information of trustworthy persons it was stated it being manifestly apparent that the monasteries abbeys priories and other places of religious or regulars in ireland are at present in such a state that in them the praise of god and the welfare of man are next to nothing regarded the regulars and nuns dwelling there being so addicted partly to their own superstitious ceremonies partly to the pernicious worship of idols and to the pestiferous doctrines of the romish pontiff that unless an effective remedy be promptly provided not only the weak lower order but the whole irish people may be speedily infected to their total destruction by such persons to prevent such a calamity the king resolved to take into his hands the religious houses and to disband the monks and nuns for which purpose he commanded the commissioners to notify his wishes to the heads of the religious houses to receive their resignations and surrender of their property to offer to those who surrender willingly a benefice or a pension and to apprehend and punish such as adhere to the usurped authority of the roman pontiff and contumaciously refuse to surrender their houses it should be noted that from the terms of this commission it is clear that no serious abuses or irregularities could have been charged against the religious houses else in the decree condemning them to extinction something more serious would have been alleged to their charge than adherence to their own superstitious ceremonies to the worship of idols and to the roman pontiff a month later allen brabazon and cowley were appointed to survey and value the rents and revenues of the dissolved monasteries to issue leases for twenty-one years of both their spiritualities and temporalities to reserve for the king the plate jewels and ornaments and to grant to the monks and nuns pensions for their maintenance although many members of the privy council in ireland had petitioned more than once for such a commission yet when rumours reached dublin that it had been granted a request was forwarded from the council to cromwell begging him to spare st mary's abbey dublin Christ's church grace dew connell kells county kilkenny and Jerpoint, on the ground amongst others that in them young men and children both gentlemen children and others both of mankind and womankind be brought up in virtue learning and in the english tongue and behaviour to the great charge of the said houses that is to say the womankind of the whole englishry of this land for the more part in the said nunnery and the mankind in the other said houses this petition received but scant consideration and no wonder because although the archbishop of dublin had agreed to it he wrote on the same day to cromwell asking him for the lands of grace due and according to a letter addressed to cromwell by another prominent irish official the deputy at that very time had obtained from the abbot of st mary's leases of all the good lodgings in the monastery and of the farms at ballybog hill and portmarnock on an agreement evidently meant to defraud the king hardly had the commission been received than brown and his companions went to work in good earnest to carry out the task entrusted to them the superiors of most of the monasteries and convents situated within the pale or in the territories dominated by the ormond faction surrendered their houses at the first summons not even the abbey of st mary's which petitioned for mercy on the ground that it kept open house for poor men scholars and orphans was spared nor the priory of connell which boasted that though it lay among the wild irish it had never any brethren unless they belonged to the very english nation during the years fifteen thirty nine fifteen forty and fifteen forty one nearly all the monasteries and convents in the territories within the jurisdiction of the king were suppressed amongst the communities and institutions that suffered were st mary's and the abbey of st thomas the martyr the carmelite dominican and franciscan houses of dublin the hospital of st john and the augustinians and franciscans of nos 
the priories of Connell and Clane, the hospital of Castle Dermot, the Dominicans of Athy, the Franciscans of New Abbey, the Carmelites of Cloncurry, the Abbey of Baltinglass, and the College of Maynooth, the Priory of St. John in Kilkenny, together with the houses of the Franciscans and Dominicans, and the Hospital for Lepers near the same city, Jerpoint, Innistog, Kells, County Kilkenny, the Carmelites of Leyland Bridge, Noctoffer, Thurles, Clonmel, the Augustinians of Cullen, Tipperary, Fethard, the Franciscans of Cashel and Clonmel, the Monastery of Dusk, Hoare Abbey, Kilcoole and Inoslana, Mellifont, the Abbey of the Blessed Virgin Mary near Trim, and of Kells, the Priories of St. Fechan at Four, and of Mullingar, the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem at Kilmanham, together with several other religious houses at Luth, Dundalk, Drogheda, Waterford, and Carlow. At the same time, most of the convents within the English sphere of influence surrounded their houses and possessions, amongst the last to do so being the celebrated convent of Grace Dieu. As a rule, whenever a house was suppressed, a pension was assigned to the superior to be paid out of the tithes of some of the ecclesiastical livings in the gifts of the monastery or priory. The amount of the pension depended to some extent upon the value of the property, which was owned by the particular house. The abbot of St. Thomas the Martyrs, Dublin, received forty-two pounds Irish, the abbot of Mellonfont, forty pounds, the prior of four, fifty pounds, the abbot of Jerpoint, ten pounds, the prioress of Grace Dieu, six pounds, the abbess of Grain, four pounds, and the prioress of Tolman Fetchen, one pound, six shillings, eight pence, etc. Grants are also made to the members of the suppressed communities, but very frequently these were very small. Of the community of Mellonfont, one received four pounds, two, three pounds, six shillings, eight pence, two, two pounds, thirteen shillings, four pence, six, two pounds, and two, one pound, while five of the community at Granard received thirteen shillings, four pence, and some from other institutions received only four pence. Many of the superiors and religious merely threw off the habit of their order to become secular clergymen and to accept a rectory or vicarage in some of the churches over which their community had enjoyed the rights of patronage. Long before the commission for suppression arrived, the scramble for a share in the plunder had begun. In this contest, the deputy, Archbishop Brown, and the principal members of the Privy Council led the way. John Aylin, master of the rolls, was the first to profit by the spoliation of the religious houses by getting possession of the property of St. Wollstone's, 1536. Lord Grey secured for himself the goods and possessions of the convent of Grain. The Earl of Ormond and the Butler family generally enriched themselves out of the lands of the monasteries situated in the southeastern portion of Ireland, as did also a host of hungry officials and gentlemen in different parts of Ireland, such as the Cowleys, Aylins, St. Leaguers, Luttrells, Plunkets, Dillons, Nugents, Prestons, Birminghams, Townleys, Aylmers, Flemings, Weisses, Eustaces, Ribazons, etc. Even Patrick Barnwell, who had resisted so strenuously the suppression of the monasteries in 1536, could not resist the temptation of sharing in the plunder. He secured for himself a large portion of the lands and advowsons of the common of Grace Dieu. In this way, the Anglo-Irish nobles were bribed into acquiescence with the king's religious policy, and were enabled to transmit to their descendants immense territories, over which they were to rule as hereditary landlords, long after the origin of their title had been forgotten. Similarly, in order to put an end to the opposition of the city authorities, which had good ground to complain of the suppressions of houses that were doing so much in the cause of charity and education, large grants were made to the corporations of Dublin, Waterford, Limerick, Clonmel, etc. Wealthy merchants who had money to invest were not slow in coming forward to secure leases of portions of the monastic land, and thereby to lay the foundations of a new so-called aristocracy. The gold and silver ornaments, the sacred vessels, the bells, and the church plate generally were sold for the benefit of the king, but the officials were never particularly careful about making the proper returns. From a partial account given by the commissioners in 1541, it appeared that from the sale of the jewels, reliquaries, pictures, and goods of the monasteries, they had received over £2,500 Irish, of which they had given close on five hundred pounds to the superiors servants etc and retained three hundred seventy five pounds as travelling expenses with the submission of the earl of desmond o'brien of thomond o'donnell etc 
a more determined campaign was initiated for the total destruction of the religious houses and particularly of those belonging to the mendicants not merely in the pale but throughout ireland a special commission was issued august fifteen forty one to the earl of desmond and others to take inventories of to dissolve and to put in safe custody all religious houses in limerick cork Kerry, and desmond in return for his activity the earl of desmond was rewarded with several grants of monastic land and even o'brien did not think it beneath him to share in the plunder in some places as for instance in monaghan the franciscan friars were put to death but in the irish districts generally the decree of suppression was not enforced and even in the english portions of the country the suppression of the monasteries did not mean the extinction of the monks the franciscans and dominicans in particular seemed to have been almost as numerous at the end of the reign of henry the eighth as they had been before he undertook his campaign against rome the whole story of these sad years is summarized in a striking if slightly exaggerated fashion by the four masters a heresy and new heir they say sprang up in england through pride vainglory avarice and lust and through many strange sciences so that the men of england went into opposition to the pope and to rome they styled the king the chief head of the church of god in his own kingdom new laws and statutes were enacted by the king and council according to their own will they destroyed the orders to whom worldly possessions were allowed namely the monks canons nuns the crouched friars and the four mendicant orders namely the friars minor the friars preachers the carmelites and the augustinians and the lordships and livings of all these were seized for the king they broke down the monasteries and sold their roofs and their bells so that from aaron of the saints to the Ikean Sea, there was not one monastery that was not broken and shattered, with the exception of a few in Ireland, of which the English took no notice or heed. They afterward burned the images, shrines, and relics of the saints of Ireland and England. They likewise burned the celebrated image of Mary at Trim, which used to perform wonders and miracles to heal the blind, the deaf, the crippled, and persons affected with all kinds of disease. They burned the staff of Jesus, which was in Dublin, and which wrought miracles from the time of St. Patrick, and had been in the hands of Christ while he was among men. They also appointed archbishops and bishops for themselves, and though great was the persecution of the Roman emperors against the church, scarcely had there ever come so great a persecution from Rome as this, so that it is impossible to narrate or tell its description unless it should be narrated by one who saw it. The analyst might have added a fact noticed by a distinguished Protestant historian that, instead of bestowing there, of the monasteries, incomes on the amelioration of the church, or expending them in providing for the religious or secular improvement of the people, in any other way, caring little apparently for the impoverishment of the church, he, Henry the Eighth, misapplied those revenues for the purposes of promoting his own gratification or enriching his favorites. End of chapter 8, part 1